We have two more Sundays in the green season, and then we move to the season of Advent on the 30th of November, the uh, beginning of the church year for the the Western churches that uh, have a liturgical bent. And from now till then, uh, the readings that we're going to hear are going to have something to do with some of the Advent themes that uh, we'll encounter in a fuller sense uh, when we get into the season of Advent. So today, uh, we have three readings that are about something called eschatology. And you're going to go, oh no, what's he going to do now? So I'll read you a definition to understand why I'm going to do this. The definition won't explain why, but... You'll have some idea if you've never heard that term before. before. Uh, It is a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world or humankind, or a belief concerning death, the end of the world, or the ultimate destiny of humankind, specifically any of various Christian doctrines concerning the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, or the last judgment. You could say eschatology is about the last things. So all three readings have a a certain aspect of eschatology to them, which we'll see reprised again uh, as we move to uh, Advent and through Advent. The first reading is from the book of Joshua, and... um, We don't read very often from the book of Joshua. It's the sixth book in the Hebrew Bible. Some people included it uh, in in my days in seminary. Joshua was sometimes included with the Torah as the hexateuch and not the pentateuch. And just so you can amaze your friends, the leading German biblical scholar who advocated that was a man named Gerhard von Rad. And he wrote a book called The Introduction to the Old Testament. There was an old joke when I was in seminary and scholarship uh, that an American, an Englishman, a Frenchman, and a German were asked to write a book on the elephant. And the American wrote a book called How to Raise Elephants for Fun and Profit. (laughs) The English person wrote a book on hunting elephants in Africa. The Frenchman wrote a book on the love life of the elephant. And the German wrote a ten-volume introduction to the elephant. (laughs) And if you've ever read any German scholarship, you'll know what I mean. So Joshua is in Shechem. And it's a story about how two groups come together in a covenantal relationship. The people in Shechem worshipped a god. They're a group that displaced the Amorites. They're in Shechem now, and they worship a god named El Barith. And the invading Israelites worship a god called Yahweh. And what we have in this reading embedded in it is a a fragment of an early 
litur- liturgy, a worship service, about how these covenant, this covenant gets put together. Now, the whole point of this is that one of the ways to understand the eschatological significance of what happened here as part of the grand narrative in the Hebrew Bible that for Christian people leads us to the New Testament and to Jesus and his words and in his works and his saving death on the cross and resurrection from the dead has to do with the fact that eschatology means looking to the future in one sense. And so we begin to see people, as they respond to the divine initiative, seek to come together in some form or another. And so Joshua goes on at some length and talks about the importance of coming together and says to everybody, choose this day who you will worship. Make a decision. And in the New Testament... Jesus will say this and say, choose this day. And Peter's response to Jesus was, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And pretty much the same is said in Shechem to Joshua. They say, we will choose Yahweh the God of the covenant. And we're going to do that and we're going to move forward now. So it tells us that somehow our future uh, is bound up with the last things as well. And how do we understand what that means uh, as we live on a daily basis? What kind of life do we want to live? What kind of God do we want to worship How do we live lives congruent with God's purposes for us? The second reading from 1 Thessalonians is one of those readings that whenever a preacher has to preach on it, he can choose not to. But it's uh, got here. Let me just read this piece to you because you heard it not long ago. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call... And with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with him to meet the Lord in the air. I don't think this is a big seller in most Christian circles today. It is with some. Have you seen those bumper stickers that say, When the rapture comes, this car will be driverless. And we got the Left Behind series. Millions of copies of those books have been sold. So let me explain what the situation was on the ground for Paul and how we might understand what what that means. Uh, It was part of Paul's preaching and teaching that the return of Jesus was going, was imminent. It was going to happen within his lifetime. And the pastoral circumstances that he was running into with the congregations that he founded were that people said, well, my Aunt Phoebe died, and what's happened to her? 
What's going to happen? And should I grieve her passing or not? And Paul says, no, you you shouldn't grieve her passing. I'm not grieving her passing because this is what I believe about this. This is going to uh, have a big influence. You know, Paul's letters are the earliest pieces of literature in the New Testament. First Thessalonians is the oldest, and it dates from about 48 uh, CE, AD. So we're moving forward now, and Paul's letters will end about 62. And then we're going to begin to see the Gospels emerge. Mark is the earliest, then Matthew and Luke together, and John is the latest Gospel. And so they're going to be talking about their own circumstances in addition to uh, reproducing from their lens and from their community uh, the teaching, the words and the works of Jesus. So they're beginning to say, well, we all thought he was going to come within our lifetime and he's not here yet. So how do we think about this? And Paul's answer in this particular case is this. He says and urges the Thessalonians not to grieve and states his grounds for not leaving, not grieving. Since Jesus died and rose again, the believers who have died will likewise rise again. This means that Jesus entered into the resurrection existence before us and will enable us to enter it too. So, you know, we don't know when this is going to happen. Think about the culture we live in. We would prefer uh, to have certain answers, and many people still believe that one day we'll have all of them. My grandfather used to say, well, someday science is going to figure out how to do X. Of course, what he really meant Uh, It wasn't too precise. It means technology will figure out what to do next. Or give some, you know, explanation of some kind or another. But people have a hard time living in the midst of uncertainty. You know, the uh, opposite of uh, doubt is not faith. The opposite of doubt is certainty. And all of us want certainty of some type, and we see it here in the New Testament a lot, that people would like to now know the answer. I've talked a whole lot about all the reading I've done, uh, the books I've been reading by N.T. Wright, the great English New Testament scholar, And I'm very persuaded by what he has to say. And here's how we might say, or he would say, to uh, Paul's congregants about, where's my Aunt Phoebe? He would say, your Aunt Phoebe is safe in the everlasting arms of God and Christ, in God's space. And one day, she's going to return and we will all be united together, even if we die and go to God as well. But every one of us will be reunited. Because that's what the Bible says. 
It's not one, what, what some theologian has said about what it is that's going to happen. It's what the biblical testimony says to us about that. And I've repeated myself over and over. If you go to England and you go into some rural country Anglican churches and you walk around in the cemetery, if you see a stone that, uh, say, dates from about 1732, uh, a lot of them will say, David Brewer, gone, but will return. And then you walk through some stones and you get yourself to about... 1811, and it will say, David Brewer, gone home. So you and I are spending a lot of time in having Christianity about figuring ways out to get to heaven instead of understanding that the promises of God and the biblical witness say we're all going to be united together and that the kingdom's going to be here. Now, the process of how that takes place is something that you and I need. I hope you understand the way I'm using this word now, somewhat agnostic. We're not in a position to be able to, to know this. Drives people nuts. But that's a situation that, in which we find ourselves dealing with the ambiguities and the uncertainties of human existence. Last week, we read from the first epistle of John on All Saints Day. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves as he is pure. And what John is describing in his epistle has something to do with the way in which we're made in God's image. And as we move on the way, we will learn something about what it means to be made in God's image. And we will learn that as we have applied this intention in our lives internally, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, that we will have some idea of what it means to be less unlike God. Eastern Orthodox call that deification, theosis in Greek. So we come to the gospel. Um, the wise and foolish maidens or some translations have the wise and foolish virgins. Whenever you read the parables of Jesus, you have to have three things in mind. What did Jesus mean when he spoke it? How did the primitive Christian church that's pre-biblical, pre-New Testament, the first Christians began after the Christ event to explain it. And what did they think it meant, what he said? And finally, the individual gospel writer who has redacted the text, edited it, 
in a sense, for his own special reasons. So we're reading from Matthew's Gospel today. Matthew was a rabbi who became a Christian. He was in a a Jewish Christian synagogue in about 80 or 85 A.D. that had become 85% Gentile. So he's trying to figure out how come this happened and what do we, when we have been, had transmitted to us through the oral tradition, what was Jesus getting at about this? So he's going to filter it through his own pastoral circumstances and his own uh, tradition from which he comes. So Jesus is telling a story, really, not about the ten maidens and virgins or whatever. He's telling a story about being prepared. And he's telling a story about the people who are prepared, who have listened to him, and now decide that they're going to choose, as it says in the book of Joshua. And they have made the decision to choose. And the foolish virgins are the ones who chose or didn't pay attention. And then... When I was in college, I had a philosophy professor named Dr. Rodney Smith. And he was a huge, like a bear of a guy. And he had this disconcerting habit of coming into class with two pairs of glasses, one in each hand. So every week when you had a pop quiz... He would uh, have one set of glasses on, the, sh- the, the short reading ones, and he would say, uh, Mr. Brewer, I wonder if you can tell me why Immanuel Kant fell, felt compelled to answer David Hume. Mr. Brewer. So we, I don't, I'm not going to tell you what I said because I made a pig's breakfast out of it. <laughs> but then he told a story, and I can't remember what it's apropos of, but I don't know what it's, whether it's apropos even now. But he told a story about a, a Scottish Presbyterian minister in a, a small village in Scotland who went away to a local presbytery meeting, and he was gone for you know, three or four or five days. And while he was gone, a number of the people in his congregation uh, decided that it was a good opportunity to kick out the jams, play a little cards, do some dancing, you know, the usual stuff. And so they did, and when he got back, some of the more loyal parishioners uh, informed on the others. And so that Sunday... Uh, the minister got into the pulpit and he said, I'm going to tell you all a story. One day, God was feeling in an especially benign mood. And he decided to look down into hell at all the souls of hell. And Rodney Smith is leaning over his podium like this, looking down. And the souls looked up And they saw God, and they said, Lord, we didn't know. And God said, well, you know now. (laughs) 
Now, if you would prefer that kind of preaching for me as moving forward, just let me know, and I got a lot I could do with this, you know. (laughs) But it is, in one sense, illustrative of the need to uh, be prepared and to understand that uh, sometimes we choose our own destiny, believing at the same time in God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness as the center point of the Christian faith and life. So Jesus is speaking uh, from that point of view. But the early church in the oral tradition began to say, well, the bridegroom who's late is the Son of Man, Jesus who hasn't showed up yet. The son, his return late is the eschatological future when it happens. And the foolish maidens, the good ones, are the Christians who hear the message of Jesus and the dawning of the kingdom and respond with repentance and faith. And it will be accepted and will be accepted when it finally comes. And those who are foolish and reject the message will find out their mistake too late. So you have to decide whether or not you want to believe that. Because it is important to be ready in all aspects of your life. But I know that this kind of talk has scared the daylights out of people, more people than uh, we can even imagine. And they have been lost to the church forever. So when you choose this day, you need to decide what kind of an ambassador for Christ you're going to be. And are you going to speak about how we understand God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness as at the heart of our self-understanding as Christians? So next week, we're going to read about the the parable of the talents. And who uses their talents well and who doesn't? And then we're going to read the gospel before Advent about the sheep and the goats, which is a parable about separation. And we're going to try to make sense out of some of that. So this week, think about how to be a transparency of God's grace and love to the world sorely in need of it. Figure out how you can get clearer than you may be now about uh, your emotional, spiritual, and mental states and give thanks for a God who loves, accepts, and forgives you. Amen.